Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 197. Today is July 24th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder, money manager, and investablewealth.com. Well, I've been away from the microphone for a while as I've uh, done some traveling, spent more than a week on the road. And while I did meet some excellent people, I also picked up a nasty cold along the way. And so I'm struggling with not losing my voice. I did want to get you an update, though, since it's been uh, several weeks now since I've done a podcast. Specifically in this episode, I want to talk about where we are with corporate profits and how that's affecting the S&P 500, which right now remains you know, pretty much at all-time record highs. I'll also tell you a little bit about how my landmine strategy is playing out. I did sell some stocks, you know, taking some profits earlier this week. We'll talk about all that. I do want to do a little housekeeping here. First off, a couple weeks ago, I appeared on JW's Financial Coaching Podcast. In the show notes will be a link to that episode. JW is an accountant by trade, and uh, he's a young guy that's uh, specializing in providing coaching services that are, I would say, similar in terms of the Dave Ramsey approach to getting out of debt. So in that podcast, we talked a lot about how you know my frugal living decisions over the past 30 years or so have uh, helped me out and put me where I'm at today and you know how those can be applied in your life. So in particular, if you're someone that's struggling with a lot of debt or perhaps if you're a young person trying to figure out how you can not make those debt decisions, then you do want to check that episode out. Again, there'll be a link to that in the show notes today. Also wanted to let you know that this upcoming Tuesday... That's July 26th. I'll be appearing in a live broadcast on Perma Ethos TV. That'll be at 4 p.m. Eastern. Access to that broadcast is free, but you do have to pre-register. And so, again, in today's show notes, I'll have a link where you can sign up for that. The neat part about doing these live presentations is that you, the audience does get to interact and ask questions. And so, if, if that's something you're so inclined to do, definitely register for that. And I'll see you on Tuesday afternoon. The other thing I wanted to mention is that I did uh, get an opportunity to visit and speak at Freedom Fest. That was my first Freedom Fest. I did enjoy it. My objective this year in in going to Freedom Fest was not only uh, the opportunity to speak and address the the group, but also to meet with certain uh, key players that are in some areas that I'm very interested in. And I did get that accomplished. So I, I got some additional information that I'll be bringing you in future podcasts about alternatives to traditional health insurance. Also, what's going on in automation and technology, how I think that that's going to be changing not only the future of the way we work, but also how that's going to have an impact on the stock market in coming years. And then finally, I did some additional research on the never-ending world of investment scams. And I don't know if it's time for a new episode on that or not, but I'll try and work those into some shows. And, And let me assure you, though, that the way that people try and scam you and get you to invest into Ponzi schemes or other types of shady investment decisions. Well, you know, as the scriptures say, there's nothing new under the sun. And so although the topics and the technology change around what they get you or what they try to get you to invest in, but the sales pitch promises never change. It's always about get rich quick or how you can get guaranteed, you know, 20% return on your money. So watch for those kind of things in, in coming episodes. I'll, I'll be covering some of those topics. But enough of that, let's get into the meat of today's episode, and that's where we're at right now with the S&P 500 continuing to be at at or near record highs. Now, as I record this, the market closed on Friday at 2175. That's an increase for the year of over 6.5%. 
You'll remember me saying for, you know, at least the last 12 months that this market has potential to go up 5 to 6%. Now, it's, it's exceeded that. It's up 65 right now. That's not unusual. That's not extraordinary. It was definitely within the realm of possibilities. And I was saying a month or so ago that although I am pessimistic and I can see a lot of scenarios where the market could pull back, So many people are pessimistic that that leads me to take a contrarian view and think that the market's going to go up. It has done that, but we're now sort of on the other side where you have, you know, imagine you're on a boat and everybody's running to one side of the boat and that's how the boat starts to tip and then eventually capsizes. Well, that's where we are now with enthusiasm. So many people are on the bullish side of things. It makes me want to be more bearish and say that the market is is likely for a pullback. Now, I have no crystal ball. I have no way to predict the future. The important thing is to remember is that not only do I not have those things, but neither does anybody else. As you watch the cable networks, they're constantly parading experts in front of you, and generally one person saying the exact opposite of the other. So while one person's saying that the market's going to go on to all-time new record highs, the other person will be saying, no, we're in, we're in a bear market. Then what happens two or three months later, whichever one of those two supposed experts were right, they bring them out and they replay their statements and they present them as being a clairvoyant or someone that uh, has a great record of predicting the future. When I will tell you for the most part, that's simply not true. No one has a consistent record of always being right. If they were, they wouldn't waste their time being on cable networks. They'd be on some secluded island somewhere enjoying life. Let me draw an analogy, and you may have heard this before, but imagine you have a hundred people lined up and they're all flipping a silver dollar and everybody that flips heads gets to stay on the stage. Whoever flips a tail has to leave. Well, we know that flipping a coin, more or less, it's a 50-50 proposition. Now, depending upon exactly the way you flip it and how high you flip it and the weight of the coin and any other type of little anomalies, could slightly affect that 50-50 one way or the other. But over time, the fact of the matter remains that 50% of the time, heads will come up and 50% of the time, tails will come up. So when we flip that first round of coins, um, you have 100 people initially. Well, half of them, more or less, are going to flip tails. And so they'll exit the stage and you'll be left with 50 people remaining. Now, again, they'll all flip their coin. Everybody that flips a tail will be asked to leave the stage. And now you're left with 25 people. This is going to happen over and over again. You're going to keep having these iterations until you get down to like two people. Now, if you put this in perspective of the media and the way things are hyped, particularly on cable news channels, you can imagine all the stories that would be coming out about how these two remaining people are geniuses, how they're able to predict the future and to be able to you know, consistently flip heads over and over and over again, when the bottom line is it all came down to probability. Now, there may have been a little luck in there. There may have been a little skill. Maybe one person's coin was a little heavily weighted so that tails were always on the bottom. But in the end, because of probability, those two people are going to go down to one, and then eventually that one person is going to flip a tail. It's just the way it works out with probability. So what we want to do as investors, and particularly as individual investors, is to play the probability. We can't predict the future. We can't come up with an algorithm that's going to be able to accurately 100% predict whether the stock market's going to go up or down on any, any given day. 
We can't do that as individual investors, nor can these geniuses on Wall Street. But what they can do and what we can do as individual investors is to play the odds. We can do the things that I talk about in the 10 Wealth Building Principles, where we look for trends, where we look for quality. I'm not going to go into all those in this episode, but I bring all this up because now while we find ourselves at record highs in the S&P 500, the question is, is it going to go higher or is it going to pull back and go lower? Well, we have no idea of knowing, and so you want to play the odds. What I've been doing on my landmine strategy, and again, I won't go into that in this episode. You can go back and listen to previous episodes where I explain it, but it basically involves where you're walking through a landmine and what you want to do is not get blown up. So what that strategy was designed to do was it had a pessimistic edge to it. I was then and I am now still very much concerned about a true bear market correction where we can see the market drop in excess of 20, 25, 30%. But I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know exactly what's going to take place. I also know the strength and the magnitude of things like central banks and fiscal stimulus spending projects, which can be used to prop up the market. Now, you can say over the long run, that's bad economic policy, but it doesn't matter if you can make money today. So earlier this year, when you recall, we were in January and we basically had one of the worst, if not the worst starts to the new year. The market was down significantly. We had the G20 get together, I believe in early February. They made some tweaks to their monetary policies among the central banks. We saw negative interest rates In Japan, we saw negative interest rates in Europe. We saw the U.S. pulling back on their expectations of how they were going to raise interest rates. Remember, when we had that first interest rate hike in December, I believe, of of this past year, 2015, where we had the increase of 25 basis points, they were then saying, the the U.S. Federal Reserve was then saying that they were going to raise interest rates four times in 2016. Well, they started to walk that back right around the end of January, beginning of February, that in combination with negative interest rates in these other major central banks, and specifically in China, you'll recall it, I keep saying that the only two economies that matter right now are the United States and China. First quarter of this year, China flooded their market with over a trillion dollars in stimulus spending. They also, since the beginning of the year, have devalued the currency over 2.5%. Now, you remember last August of 2015, when we had that double bottom in the flash crash, a lot of that was perpetuated by the week before China had unexpectedly come in, devaluated the currency about 2%. I've been saying for some time now that I think that we're going to see them do a 20 or maybe even a 50% deval over the period of the next couple years. There's just too much excess capacity in their economy and their technology. A lot of it is, you know, 1990s, 1980s type old school Rust Belt factories that are not productive. And at the same time, their labor costs have been have been rising. So China's in a world of hurt right now, not only from a demand standpoint, but from an inefficiency on their supply side. And so that's why I believe that they have to devalue, but that devaluing that they did last year had a major uh, scaring impact on the, on the stock market. And so I think they got the message that they had to rein that in a little bit, which they've done. But at the same time, we don't want to watch what these central bankers say. We want to watch what they do. And what I don't think you're being told much about in the press is the fact that they have devalued their currency two and a half percent since the beginning of the year. 
So watch that. When they do that, that exports deflation. That's why we continue to see our economy in this tug of war between inflation and deflation. And so when we're at a time in the U.S. stock market as well as global stock markets, when profits are declining, you'd say, well, why are we at all-time record highs in the U.S.? And one of those reasons is because of this central bank intervention and this devaluation and deflationary pressures that are occurring all over the world. Whenever you have something like negative interest rates or extremely low interest rates, it makes stocks that much more attractive. Now, what worries me about this market, it's worried me for quite some time, is that I don't hear people saying that they want to buy XYZ stock because they think it's going to be more valuable in six months. They're telling me they're buying XYZ stock because it pays a dividend and they can't get a return anywhere else. To me, that's a big concern. That's a recipe for disaster. At some point, interest rates will have to go up. When they do, that'll not only drag down equity prices in stocks, but depending on how fast they rise, it could burst this bubble we're seeing in, in the low interest rate environment. Now, can the central banks massage this in management and, and drag it out for you know 15 years? Well, maybe. I have no way of knowing. Look what they've done in Japan. They've been dragging that thing along for... You know, 27 years. That's an island economy. It's a closed economy. It's an economy based on exports. It's a very homogenous economy. It's an economy, again, where you see these forces of inflation and deflation playing tug of war with each other. And what I mean by that is that Japan is continuing to devalue and debase their currency and to have things like negative interest rates, which on the surface would be very inflationary. But on the other side of things, you have to remember that their export markets have been contracting and their population is not only aging, but it's also declining. Those are very deflationary. And so that tug of war goes back and forth, but in the end, it keeps them pretty much in balance. That's why their economy hasn't gone into a death spiral. It hasn't had hyperinflation because of the debasement of the currency, nor has it had catastrophic deflation because of their very poor demographics. They're balancing each other out. So can the U.S. Federal Reserve keep balancing things out for the next 15, 20 years until the economy eventually does come to a true balance? Well, sure they could. I have no way of knowing. I bring all this up, and I know to some of you it's, it's uh, really inside baseball and too wonky, but you have to consider these things because if things just go along stable, then that means that the stock market will continue to grow at you know 3 to 3 to 6% a year, that you're not going to see gold get up to $5,000 an ounce because there's not going to be runaway inflation, nor are you going to see a collapse in real estate prices because things are just going to be pretty much status quo. On the other hand, if inflation starts to get out of hand and they do have to raise interest rates, that could create a bond bubble, which would mean trillions of dollars in, in write-offs and losses for people that currently own bonds, things that are thought to be stable. That's bad news for sovereign wealth funds and for pension funds, uh, retirement uh, benefit programs. On the other hand, if we continue in this lackluster growth projection that we're on, and interest rates stay in the zero or negative territory, then those same insurance companies and pension funds can't provide the future expenditures that they're promised because they can't get the seven or so percent return on the equity that they've invested. And so that's going to create problems. So are we going to have hyperinflation? Are we going to have catastrophic deflation? Or is the markets just going to muddle along? We have no way of knowing. But what we can do is play the odds. 
That's what we do when we follow simple moving averages that you've heard me talk about now for these last two years. I think they're a very effective way for you to be able to get a good snapshot and a grasp of what your assets are worth today. And although they won't tell you what they're likely to be in the future, they at least give you an idea of where the momentum is headed. That's what I've done with my landmine strategy where I've taken about 30% of my portfolio's value and I said I'm going to invest that in the market in case things go up. That way, if things do go up, I'll try and make enough of a return to cover inflation and fees and expenses and hopefully to be able to put a little bit of money in my pocket. And at the same time, if things fall apart, I'll have a small loss because only 30% of my portfolio will be exposed. And then if things do fall apart, I'll have that 70% cash that I can put into the market and buy the dip. Well, I haven't given up on the thought that things could still fall apart. And as this market has been rising, I've been selling some of those stocks, taking profits at the top. I sold three additional stocks this past Monday. Um, As always, I do put that up over investablewealth.com, so don't wait to hear about my my, uh, stock purchases in this podcast. You need to go over to investablewealth.com to get more of a timely information of when I'm in or out of something. What I want to do with these equities that I'm owning is as they get up into that uh, double-digit range, when they get up around 10%, I'm tending to take profits. In normal markets, I like to hold out until I get up in the range of 20 or 25% returns on individual stocks or, or individual ETFs where I'm following a trend, but I'm being much more conservative in this kind of an environment. So if I can get somewhere between, say, 8 and 15%, that's where I'm taking my profits now. Over the past month or so, I've sold, I believe, four different positions, and so I, uh, so I have less than 30% of my portfolio in the market. I need to rebalance that in the coming weeks and decide which new markets I want to enter. I'll tell you, one of the things I'm looking at strongly is whether or not I want to go into foreign stocks. I'm very concerned that one of the reasons that we're at all-time record highs in the U.S. market is simply because money is flooding into the United States because there's no other place that's perceived as safe or having growth. So that's very much expanding the U.S. valuations and making them not a good deal. So the natural thing to do there would be to look for opportunities in other markets. That's something easier said than done because with the slowdown across the globe, although many of these markets have much lower valuations than the United States, the reason they have lower valuations is because their prospects are so much dimmer. So you will see me in the in the next week or two probably making some another, say, three to five purchases in my portfolio. I could move into some foreign markets or I could try and, and hit some niche markets within the U.S. that I think might still have a little bit more room to run. So point number one I want to make in this episode, the reason that markets in the United States are at all-time record highs is not that we have a a phenomenal growing, expanding economy. It is growing. It's just not growing phenomenally. And the reason money is pouring into the United States is because we're the best house in a bad neighborhood. You've been hearing me say that for close to two years now. That hasn't changed. And with negative and zero interest rates around the globe, with U.S. Treasuries at 1.5%, that puts them head and shoulders above everything else that's in the, in the developed world. So that's why money's flocking here. And again, the question you have to ask yourself, are we getting too expensive? 
On the other side of that, you heard me open up this episode where I mentioned that, you know, right now we're in in second quarter earnings announcements. And it looks like we're going to see continued declining earnings. And this is something like 15 months in a row of declining earnings. People are calling this an earnings recession. What's really happening here, it's just the convergence of the shift in the economy from all the effects of not only the central bank intervention, which is devaluating the currencies, but on the other side, it's that technology, things like automation, that are reducing the costs of products and services. So it keeps inflationary pressures low because wages can't rise, even though the value of the currency gets debased. But it does leave us in a quagmire as these markets shift because at this point, neither the inflationary camp nor the deflationary camp is making ground or winning the the tug of war. Things are pretty much remaining status quo. There are also people that are saying that, hey, after 15 months of declining profits, we're hitting a bottom and things are going to get better And so the stock market is just discounting that good news. And since profits are going to increase in the future, that's going to drive the stock market on to further highs. Well, I do think that that's likely. But again, you have to ask yourself, are we too overvalued now and overcompensating for better profits that are going to come out in the future? The real dismal spots of the economy have been falling energy profits and falling materials and industrial profits. Now, that's what people are projecting to turn around and improve going forward, you know, even if oil stays in this $40 range, $40, $45 range, profits are likely to improve in the energy sector or to at least stabilize because they've been so low for so long. It isn't that the energy sector is going to make more money. They're just going to stop losing money. You see, if you go back, say, two years, oil was $110 a barrel. Today, it's at like 44 So you can see just on a marginal difference how much more the energy sector would have made two years ago because the price of oil was so much higher than it is today. Well, it's been falling since 2014. And so the marginal return on oil priced below $60 a barrel is eventually going to taper itself out as long as oil can stay above, say, $40 a barrel. So as the theory goes, that's going to improve the energy sector profits. And then because overall energy costs are lower, that's going to continue to have a positive effect on consumer spending. And so these declining earnings and declining profits that we've seen over the last 15 months are going to start improving. I do buy into that thought process. My only concern is that as I look around the globe, we see worldwide demand flat to declining for that very reason that we've talked about in the past about petrodollars. And if oil prices do stay where they're at, that just means that there's less U.S. dollars, what we call petrodollars, in the countries that have been the hotspots over the last 15 years. So the Middle East and then other commodity countries like Venezuela, Nigeria, or even the oil exporting countries in Northern Europe, you know, in Scandinavia on the, on the continental side or the North Atlantic on the United Kingdom side. These are countries that over the last you know, 20 years have grown and expanded their economies simply because of the rising price of oil. If oil stays low, and I believe it is, I believe it's going to stay in this sub $60 range. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see oil continuing to fluctuate somewhere between $30 and $50 a barrel. That means less U.S. dollars circulating around the globe. That's less global demand. That affects everything from iron ore exports in Australia, 
which incidentally is in a housing bubble that's far worse than anything that we saw in the United States in 2008, simply because of the way that the real estate has been bidded up because of their export economy to China, which is diminishing. And we see similar problems, although their origin is different. The problems are the same in Singapore, Malaysia, or, or Dubai. It's growth that's been fueled by commodity exports and extreme amounts of debt and leverage, which don't look like they can be sustained any longer. Now, I can't predict the future. I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know whether inflation or deflation is going to win the tug of war. I can't predict exactly how much more stimulus the central banks will try and interject into the economy, nor can I have any way of knowing what type of political fiscal decisions are going to be made in the next year, which could again flood the U.S. economy with shovel-ready projects and infrastructure spending and tax rebates and repatriation of uh, corporate assets back to the United States because uh, corporate tax brackets and corporate accounting procedures are changed by an act of Congress. You know, they, they simply change the tax code. Those things can have a very positive impact on corporate profits simply by a stroke of the legislative pen. So none of us can know whether or not those things are going to occur or whether we're going to have further stalemate. And so just like with my example with the coin flippers, we can't predict the future. We have to rely on playing the odds. Right now, I remain concerned enough that I only want to keep approximately 30% of my portfolio in the stock market. I'm not investing in any type of bonds because the interest rates are just too low, particularly when you factor in the risk of rising interest rates. So for my money and the money that I manage, what I'm going to do is take small incremental positions in high-quality stocks and very liquid exchange-traded funds that I think are favored by short-term trends and are exhibiting solid fundamentals. What I mean by that is that companies that are making money and companies or niches that are in industries that are favored by future growth. And so I'll focus on those type of companies and those type of exchange-traded funds I'll be purchasing positions in the range of, say, 5 to 10% of my portfolio in these individual trades. And then cumulatively, they'll represent you know, somewhere in the range of 30% of my overall portfolio's exposure to assets. Now, that could go up. Uh, you know, I say 30%. It could go 30 to 45%, somewhere in that range. But I'm not going to go into this market more than 50% until I see a major shift. And this is what we have not had for well over 18 months. The shift I'm talking about is where we have a decided market with long-term momentum in either the upward or the downward direction. If I definitely see that inflation is taking over and the market is poised for growth and it looks like we're going to have long-term growth potential in assets, then I will jump in to things like index funds in the S&P 500 to the, to the rate of 75 or 100% of my portfolio. On the other side, if it looks like we have definitive momentum that the market is headed for, say, a 20% correction, and again, this is something that we haven't seen for a long, long time, and when it happens, it'll be likely to happen quickly, so you might not be able to catch it. But if we do see that trend occurring, and I think that that's likely to happen because of you know possible political events in the United States, a la Donald Trump, or something occurring in China where we see a definitive slowdown, something below their 5 or 6% growth rates, or them having a major devaluation of their currency. That could put the global markets into a tailspin. 
if something like that occurs, then there's a probability that I would put up to, say, 25% of my portfolio into shorting the market. And I draw those two different analogies just to give you some idea of how you play these odds. Over time, the market is likely to go up, and so you want to factor more probability into growth. That's why I would do 75 to 100% of my money long-term in something like an S&P 500 index if I thought the momentum was up. But even if I'm absolutely convinced that the market is going down, I'm probably not going to do more than 25% in shorting the market because we know that over time, the probability is that the market's going to go up. Because if the market long-term goes into a tailspin, then we all lose one way or the other. So you really don't ever want to bet on Armageddon. Ah, but I digress. In any case, it's been a while since I made an episode. I did want to give you some of my thoughts on where I think things are going uh, to keep you up to date on what I'm doing with the landmine strategy. I have a great deal of topics on things that we need to cover. I'll try and get to them as best as I can as we go into the closing months of the summer. Um, I think that we are definitely going to see a very volatile market between now and either uh, just before or just after the election in November. So stay tuned. Thanks for joining me. Please continue to send in your questions and your suggestions, and I'll do my best to answer those and wrap those up in future episodes. And so until the next time, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.